Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. Today is Tuesday, April 13th, and I am Amanda Carpenter filling in for the vacationing Charlie Sykes. Our guest is Bulwark regular and one of our favorites from Lawfare, David Priest. How are you, David? Hello, Amanda. I love the fact that you are filling in for Charlie a day after JVL and Sarah jointly tried, and apparently the Bulwark gods decided it was not enough. They had to turn... (laughs) They had to turn to the cleanup hitter, Amanda Carpenter. Well, thank you. This is the first podcast I've ever hosted. So um, do we have a hazing ritual? Good luck to us. I, I think we have to somehow indoctrinate you to this. I feel like as the most frequent guest on the podcast, I should have some hoop that I make you jump through at this point. But instead, maybe I'll just give you my typical ridiculous answers and see what magic you can make of them. No, I think my hazing ritual for guests is that you have to make an announcement because I hear (laughs) you have a special announcement about a project you've been working on. Yes. um, And I have not even been working on it much. It's been uh, others in the Lawfare Club. But Lawfare has put out uh, on Friday, I believe, we published the first episode of a new serial audio narrative podcast. This one is called After Trump. It is based on the book that Lawfare published late last year by Bob Bauer and Jack Goldsmith, uh, After Trump, Reconstructing the Presidency, which is a quick hit, but expertly pulled together list of all of the norms, traditions, and laws that Trump exposed as weaknesses in the institution of the presidency. And then all of the ways to fix it, all of the suggested legislative language and things we should do and notably not do in order to basically fortify the presidency against a smarter Trump. Um, The podcast, we decided to follow the same pattern that we at Lawfare did back for The Report, which was our number one podcast about the Mueller report. Um, in this case, we brought in a host, Virginia Heffernan, famous from Trumpcast uh, of Slate. Uh, she is the host, but it pulls on the expertise of Bob and Jack in the book, but also bringing in reporters, bringing in other experts to talk about things. The first episode, for example, had Mary Trump in to talk about some of the financial issues involving Trump and the presidency. And there will be five more episodes released every week on the After Trump podcast feed. So I hope everyone so will check these- it out. Policy solutions, campaign solutions. Yeah. It sounds like you're going to identify all the problems with Trump and tell us how to fix it. That is quite, quite <laughs> a quest. Yeah. I got to say, when Bob and Jack came to us in early 2020 and said, We want to publish this book, but no traditional publisher is going to be able to turn it around in time, well, we jumped at the chance and we decided we'd hack the book industry. And they were still editing uh, the, the text and getting us some of their ideas literally weeks before publication in the fall. And it covers a whole bunch of things. It covers war powers. It covers conflicts of interest. It covers uh, financial operations. It covers the operations of the White House Counsel and the Justice Department and their interactions with the president, investigations of presidents. It covers a whole bunch of topics. And again, it, it actually offers ideas for solutions to these issues that are not inherently beneficial to any particular party or organization, just ways of fortifying the presidency against uh, the challenge of somebody trying to hijack it for their own purposes. So it's a it's quite an undertaking. The podcast won't cover everything in the book, but that's good because that's why there's a book. But the podcast really brings it alive in a, a more entertaining and energetic format for people. 
great. I feel like I should give you an award. Like maybe I should go down to the local trophy shop and pick out a shiny bowl that says David Priest, number one champion for freedom. Wow. And then we'll take a picture together and you will be so happy. You will only say nice things about me in the future and we'll be best buddies forever. That's how it works, right? Because that, that, that's I don't hard know if you saw. Down. I, I have to NRC say, though. Chairman Rick Scott did that to Donald Trump. That's <laughs> going to work, right? I, th- I think that trophy, well, first of all, I suspect that's a traveling trophy that, that will not stick with him forever. And I fear that if you got me that trophy, that you would have the same condition. And then I would be heartbroken when I had to put this trophy in someone else's hands. <laughs> well, I thought I could easily buy you off. Um, but that was a bit of fun, right? So it was ridiculous. I don't know if you saw that, the photo. They're smiling. Um, yeah. And it, meanwhile, It was Donald the kind Trump- of thing that makes me realize as much as we want to be through with the past, the past ain't through with us. And it's it's continuing and it's continuing in a comical form that becomes increasingly dissociated from a, a rational projection. That is, if you could go back six months, 12 months, uh, God forbid, four years, and predict the evolution of both some of these personalities and what they would do in various scenarios, it no one could have predicted the absolute absurdity and comedy of the way things are developing now within the party. Yeah, it's absolutely schizophrenic. I mean, you have Rick Scott, who is charged with raising money for Senate candidates, giving Mm -hmm. Donald Trump the Freedom Award, while Donald Trump is bashing Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell as a stone-cold loser, a son of a B, and other other ways. And And then you have Nikki Haley, who... Did you see the clip from her yesterday? Apparently she's holding a press conference and I'm having a hard time figuring out why the former South Carolina governor, former UN ambassador is even holding a press conference because she holds no office right now. She has no influence, Um, but she is asked about 2024 and she says, if Donald Trump runs, she will not run and she will support him. Hmm. What do you make about that one? I don't think she can say anything else at this point because of where the electorate is, in part because of her own actions and others. Um, it's a holding place. I mean, everybody's in this weird holding pattern for this and the so-called jockeying going forward for 2024 and beyond is is like slow motion. It's almost like people have been frozen in place, uh, but she doesn't want to lose even that place. So she holds a press conference. Why, you ask? Because people will cover it because we're talking about it. It's actually working. So yeah, that's why she did it. What her play is here. I mean, she has tried to play this game where she is the reasonable, rational person who likes the Trump policies and worked for the president. But, you know, we'll, we'll call him out when there's something that she disagrees with only to walk it back a few days later. That doesn't really endear her to the hardcore MAGA heads. And it does not really rescue her with the the more rational parts of the party. Uh, I don't know whether an Adam Kinzinger or a, a Liz Cheney welcomes Nikki Haley as much because of what she has done in terms of now essentially forgiving the insurrection and uh, agreeing that Donald Trump should run again despite his role in, or at least that she would uh, support him if he did run again. So I don't know what she, what she thinks she's gaining by this. Her better strategy would probably be to lay low just for a few months because nothing's going to be resolved in a few months anyway. And given the institutional amnesia of the Republican Party, 
uh, might not be a bad idea just to sit out for a few months and try to try to wait a little bit of it out. Yeah, it seems to me she's she's playing on an act of God lane, meaning the only way she becomes a viable candidate is if an act of God occurs and somehow Donald Trump is removed from the 2024 discussion, either as a candidate mm-hmm. or a kingmaker. Because the smart money seems to be what Ron DeSantis is doing. Suck up to Trump, hope Trump sits out and declares him the candidate. That's right. why they're all going to Mar-a-Lago. That's, and if you watch how DeSantis has been positioning and how the Fox News hosts treat DeSantis versus other candidates like a Christie Nome, it's mm-hmm. very clear that DeSantis is the favorite. And so I'm not even sure, I mean, how can Nikki Haley be an alternative to that? I mean, she's, she's I, her only chance is if everything just massively implodes and the Republican Party changes in transformational ways. Yeah, I, I think there, there are two potential scenarios where I could see her, in a sense, inheriting a front runner status. One is, I think, more likely, which is that let's say it's Ron DeSantis, but frankly, it could be several people. But let's say it's Ron DeSantis, who is a Trump anointed candidate. Mm-hmm. And Trump goes to rallies and speaks out for him and supports him and all of this. And then DeSantis varies from the Trump is the golden God message, 1%, uh, maybe a half percent. And Trump in a fit of rage, essentially disowns him and knocks him off that pedestal. And therefore, he is no longer the anointed one. At that point, Nikki Haley is basically there to pick up the reins and and take advantage of that. Uh, the other one is that there is, in fact, something that we've talked about collectively on this podcast and elsewhere for years. But there is actually some kind of a more formal break within Republican ranks that there actually is some form of reckoning at some level whereby some of the party just decides whether it's a new party or whether it's a movement within the party that will nominate its own candidates, that somehow there is a MAGA-ish party, but not fully Donald Trump's party that is trying to fully capture what he does uh, without kissing up to him in a DeSantis uh, level of doing it. In that case, I think Nikki Haley could have uh, some, some hope there. But it's really hard. And it's a strategy that's based on a lack of ethics in the first place. So I don't have too much sympathy for how hard that lane will be. Yeah, I'm not sure. I think anyone hoping to participate in Republican politics for the foreseeable time being has to get really straight on where they stand on the insurrection. Mm -hmm. And Nikki Haley doesn't know. You can look at the comments uh, that she made after the riots occurred and then how she tried to walk that line. Tim Alberta, of course, at Politico did a fantastic piece walking through the exhausting machinations that she's undergone. Mm -hmm. And I I think she's sort of thrown her hands and and given up for the time being. But I want to revisit what's happening, what happened at Mar-a-Lago this weekend with that donor retreat. This was sort of an under the radar thing. And I probably paid more attention to it because I used to work um, for one of the key organizers of, of this group, the conservative principles group, uh, led by my former boss, Jim DeMint. Mm-hmm. And so if you would have asked me 10 years ago, if I could have ever envisioned, you know, social conservative Jim DeMint holding a fundraising event at Mar-a-Lago, um, I would have laughed. But now I feel like I want to cry because the single most important data set I take from December 
until now are these three things. There is a massive coalition of conservative uh, influencers and activists who were all in on the canceling of votes. You mm-hmm. look at the 18 attorneys general, you know, 17 plus Ken Paxton, who supported that lawsuit to cancel the votes in the swing states that Joe Biden won. Uh, along with that, there was an array of conservative groups under the Conservative Action Project. Uh, we're talking Leadership Institute. We're talking uh, Tony Perkins, Tea Party. It just, the list went on and on. They issued a statement in December that just outright declared uh, President Trump the rightful winner of the election. Mm-hmm. And they were purely advocating for Republican legislatures to overturn the results. That is a really big deal. None of them taking it back. And then, of course, you have the 147 members of Congress who objected to Biden's certification after the riot. Now, you look at you have look at those groups of people. That is an important coalition that has formed. You have the lawyers, you have the activists, you have the elected officials who were all in on canceling votes and had a nationwide operation to do it. Um So while we pay a lot of attention to the 2024 candidates who are going down to kiss the ring, I I want people to pay attention to the groups, the organization, the money that's going down there and being organized because these are the people who are going to control the 2024 primaries. And I I think you're right to focus on that because, listen, it's it's not about uh, a national vote. It's not about these statistics that that I've been seeing, I don't know if you've seen them too, but statistics showing that uh, Republican Party affiliation is down. I think something showed 25% of people uh, consider themselves strongly Republican, which is uh, down from recent years. Um, That almost doesn't matter because at the state and local level, you have essentially wired districts, wired races. I think the latest estimates are something like 90% of members of Congress are in safe seats for their party. And something like 30% of state legislative races are uncontested. They don't even have an opposing candidate. When you have that in place, if you have the, it's not even the Trumpification of the Republican party at the state and local level, it's the de-anti-Trumpification. It's kicking out officials who actually followed the law or at least chastising them and rebuking them. But in some cases, actually removing from the party people who refused to violate the law in the big lie. When you have that, and they still do control so much machinery, to me, it's not even about the big donor events. It's not even about these candidates for the presidential level. It's about the fact that we have a ossified two-party system, and they're guaranteed to be on the ballot, and they're guaranteed to get a high number of seats in a high number of places, even if they go completely authoritarian. And that is just the way the system is. That's what worries me. There are a lot of people out there talking about good remedies to this. Maybe we'll get into this later. But it is a disturbing trend that has no obvious off-ramp, certainly not an easy one. Yeah. And speaking of the big election lie, uh, I I doubt you're a regular viewer of Tucker Carlson's nightly program. Oh, I celebrate his entire catalog. (laughs) (laughs) By way of YouTube clips that appear on on Twitter in various segments, because that is the only way I really watch the show. I have to say, as 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 a political observer, I do 
knowing that he has an outsized influence on a chunk of the American public, I do tune in now and again, not frequently, but now and again, just to get a snapshot. And some of the time I find it mildly interesting. Uh, Most of the time I find it jaw droppingly bad and obviously very frustrating. But what he's been doing lately about you know, doubling down on the great white replacement theory is, mm-hmm. is toxic and it's, it's more dangerous than annoying. Yeah. I, I do occasionally. So uh, a couple times a week I stay up to do Don Lemon's show, which is on from 10 to midnight. Mm-hmm. And so while I'm prepping, curling my hair, or whatever, getting ready for the show, I will turn on the XM stream occasionally of Tucker Carlson's program. Mm-hmm. And I, my neck snapped back last week when I heard him defending the insurrection. Uh, Jim, who's producing the show, can attest to this. I went immediately on the Slack and said, this is another level. I'm just going to read a portion um, from his transcript last week about how he talked about the insurrection. And keep in mind, he does this in a very snarky, very sarcastic way. So you're just going to have to put on that effect for me. Um, Here he goes. For those of you who are not good at dates or don't have calendars, This is a day that we pause to remember the white supremacist QAnon insurrection that came so very close to toppling our government and ending this democracy forever. You saw what happened. It was carried on television every gruesome moment. A mob of older people from unfashionable zip codes somehow made it all the way to the Washington, D.C., probably by bus. They wandered freely through the Capitol like it was their building or something. They didn't have guns, but a lot of them had extremely dangerous ideas. They insisted, for example, that the last election wasn't entirely fair. The whole thing was terrifying. And then, as you've been told so very often, they committed unspeakable acts of violence. And so that's just a normal normal monologue from Tucker, downplaying the events, um, mocking people who are actually concerned that uh, Capitol Police were hurt, that people were killed, that people breached the Capitol in order to stop the counting of votes to prevent Joe Biden from be becoming president. But this is how they put on, like, mm, insurrection, no big deal. That That's stunning, isn't it? it, it it's stunning, and it's stunning in a way uh, that others have noted. This is not an original David thought, but my, I don't know if it was an assumption, um, maybe maybe my assessment not long after January 6th was this would be one of those madmen moments where uh, Don Draper says, you know, this never happened. It will be, you know, shocking to you how quickly this never happened. I thought there would be just an w- unwillingness to talk about it, completely ignoring it, not taking responsibility, not reckoning with the fact of what led to it. I, I thought that was most likely. And instead, we've rapidly turned within a matter of weeks uh, to embracement, to, to, to embracing it, to actually thinking, you know, this was a good thing. They were doing something noble and, you know, there was some violence associated with it. And you'll see others who will say, well, that clearly was, you know, left wingers in the audience. And that couldn't have happened because of the people with these noble ideals of preserving our country. Um, but it's actually become a, a celebration, uh, and that that is even more disturbing, obviously, because of the historical parallels. Uh, when you when you celebrate something like that and make that part of the the membership, part of the the in group identity, that 
often goes to a very dark place. And Tucker Carlson has just decided that, you know, he will be one of the flag bearers for that very thing. Yeah. And here's something I'm worried about. And let me run this by you and see if you think this makes sense. Because Tucker is, you know, probably the most gifted communicator in Republican politics at the moment. And what I see him doing is fusing together the big election lie with this white replacement conspiracy theory. That's what it is. The idea that the Democrats and the media are working illegally, fraudulently, maliciously to import new voters to displace, you know, good American Republican voters is a conspiracy theory. But it is based on the same premise as the big election lie. It's the same thing. And I think that's why it's so incredibly compelling to this audience. And and I'm worried about the influence it is going to wield into 2022 and 2024, because clearly the loudest voices at Fox News want that to be the message. Yeah. And and you're right. Having a toxic narrative is a problem. Having reinforcing narratives is a much bigger problem because then it's not just one story or one timeline that you have to convince people to believe, or if they're predetermined to believe it, to reinforce. If you've got reinforcing narratives, um, then that's a full worldview. Then that is a way of looking at all of politics and society and the pieces all fit together and reinforce each other. It's much harder psychologically. It's much harder to unwrap that. And you're exactly right. That's why this is dangerous. But also, I mean, it provides the perfect explanation for why those Republican voters are losing power. I mean, it's an evil explanation. It is a false explanation. But the fact is, they are losing power. Republicans have not won the popular vote in previous elections. Democrats are on the march. They are winning. But Republican voters who believe this narrative will be forced to do no inward reflection because it will all be the evil Democrats and the media's fault for importing illegal voters. True. Uh, And even worse, they will not lose enough of the vote to, to reckon with that. That is, there will be enough in part because of these safe districts and other dynamics I mentioned that it, it won't be enough of a hit to, to cause them to fundamentally re-examine. So I I mentioned earlier that there was a a poll I'd seen recently, and I I can't remember, maybe it was 2019 or 2020, uh, but I'm not recalling exactly, that um, since that time, Republican uh, identification has gone down to 25% with another, I can't remember, 12 or 13% leaning uh, Republican. But that sounds like bad news that, the, you know, well, the, Re- the Republican Party has taken a hit because of this, uh, and they have. But I believe the Democratic identification was only 30%. And so in part, it's a shift towards more people saying they don't want to formally identify with the Democratic or the Republican Party, but they lean towards one. Um, that could just be a greater trend towards polarization in an odd sense, which is not polarization saying, I'm going to be a sworn member of the Republican Party, but actually dissociating yourself from calling yourself a member of a party, but being more inclined to fight the other side. Uh, I think it was a Pew Research poll recently that said, you know, it's not just trust in government, but trust between citizens is is way down to the point that you have substantial number of people, 40 some percent, 
who are saying that the other side, whoever their opposition is politically, are downright evil. Now, mm-hmm. that's not necessarily a party identification thing. That That's a polarization thing which correlates with party identification. But again, it, 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 it continues us down this dark road of reinforcing narratives that continue to demonize and make it easier to believe the things that Tucker and others are spouting. Yeah. And I guess speaking of narratives and criminals, what amazes me is that the people being arrested for the insurrection, uh, there's been more than 377 arrests Mm -hmm. from people around the country. How is it that Fox News can do a throwaway storyline on Kamala Harris getting a cupcake and make that stick? Is that a thing? Oh yeah, that was a big story last week. Don't you know she's head of? uh, She's supposed to be controlling the border crisis, and she had the audacity to get a snack at a Chicago bakery. How How could she be doing her job? Well, that's what Steve Ducey or one of the Ducies, I don't know, wanted to know in the briefing room last week. That's an important question, don't you think? Wow, Um, Um, I I, I, that did not even hit my radar. And you know what? (laughs) I'm I was a better person for it, and I'm a worse person for hearing it now. Well, I knew I'd have to apologize for hosting this podcast at some point during. Our discussion, but why, why, why isn't this a focal point story? I mean, not just in Fox, but across the networks, I would say even CNN, the fact that more than we're going on 400 people being arrested and it's like you said, boop, well, maybe they had a point who cares? It's been memory hold. Yeah. And the, and the folks who have been arrested are so interesting compared to past events uh, where often it was a lot of. Uh, locals, and you could guess the demographics. I remember hearing from some of the folks who put together the uh, Chicago project on security and threats that they had to invent a new category because all of their previous data collection had not included somebody in their protests and and violent demonstrations. They did not have business owner as a category to code. And they had to create that because you actually had middle-class or well-to-do business owners showing up and engaging in this activity at the Capitol. It's a, it's a very different phenomenon and one that we are, we are not prepared to deal with. Yeah. I'm actually looking at a story that includes some analysis from that Chicago project. And uh, it says those involved are by and large older and more professional than right-wing protesters we have surveyed in the past. They typically have no ties to existing right-wing groups. But like earlier protesters, they are 95% white and 85% male. And this is interesting. Many live near and among Biden supporters in blue and purple counties. So what does that say to you? What what kind yeah. of profile is that? Yeah, that that's interesting because what that points to is a sense, whether it's personal or collective, that is, if it's an individual going from, let's say, uh, Dallas County or Tarrant County in Texas, um, whether it's an individual going or a group going, that there's this sense of they're they're around us and we don't like it. Now, regardless of who they are, whether it's we don't want members of the Democratic Party around us or we are actually racist and we don't want people who don't look like us around us, but whatever it is, that that sense of aggrievement that's enough that they travel to Washington and engage in this it isn't from the counties where they primarily, it isn't from the counties where they look around and they say, okay, a lot of people think like me. It's coming from the places where they look around and they say, well, there's a bunch of people around me who don't think like me and I need to do something about it. 
uh, that's a really interesting thing. It's, it's, it's not a mobilization of the base as an extension of a political phrase. It's really a self mobilization of people who feel like, you know, they're perhaps losing their neighborhood or they're outcast within their own physical area, which is a, a very different problem to try to treat when you have communities within communities who are feeling aggrieved enough to take part in such an action. Yeah. And maybe they hear Tucker's message about whites being replaced and they're very um, perceptive to that. That is something that makes an impression on them and would make them want to act on it. Um, But now moving into something that's going to be happening Mm. on the Capitol this week, which is noteworthy to your subject matter of expertise, that'll be the worldwide threat briefing. Oh, yes. What can you tell us is that's about uh, because it didn't happen last year. Is that correct? Uh, it did not happen last year. So we get to do something that we we don't often get to do, which is have a, a positive story. Here is something, a tradition that I'll explain in a, in a moment, but a tradition that has gone on for many years that is rejuvenated, that is back after uh, not being there last year. And I think that's that's a positive thing because there are some very important things that happen here. So this is something that has taken place for more than 25 years, which is every year the Senate and or House Intelligence Committee, in recent years, usually both, invite some of the leaders of the United States intelligence community to come to Capitol Hill and engage in open testimony about the greatest threats to the national security of the United States. Now, this is foreign intelligence primarily. Yes, the FBI has been invited on many occasions and speaks about other issues, but it's been primarily intelligence about foreign threats. And this has been relatively uncontroversial since the early 1990s when it when it has uh, when it started. Um, sometimes it's the head of the intelligence community. Usually, it is before the post 9-11 reforms, that was the director of central intelligence who was dual hatted as CIA director. Since those reforms, it's almost always been the director of national intelligence who oversees the intel community. But each each side of the Capitol decides who they want to invite. And usually it's included the CIA director, most often the defense intelligence agency director. And then sometimes they include the head of the National Counterterrorism Center or the head of the State Department or Department of Homeland Security Intelligence Office. And it's always a interesting thing to see because here you have these organizations dedicated to collection and analysis of primarily secret information, classified information that by definition cannot be shared widely. And yet Congress says every year you're going to come up here and you're going to describe to us what you see as the greatest threats to America based on that classified information. You just have to do it in an unclassified format. Yeah. One question. So when I read the material about this previewing the event, I've in previous years as well, it's always described as a big test mm-hmm. for the intelligence community. Now, is that because they have to keep straight of the classified information and unclassified information, or just the fact that, that they are going to be put on the spot um, by these lawmakers who can literally ask them about anything in the world that is going on. Just talk a little bit about the prep and how how they approach 
this event and what they would be most concerned about? Sure. It's, it's all of that and more. So it is important because it forces the intelligence community at the highest level to rack and stack the threats. And last year on the Lawfare podcast, I hosted Jim Clapper, the former DNI, and Mike Hayden, the former CIA and NSA director, and Andy McCabe, the former acting director of the FBI, all of whom have taken part in this in a preparation sense, but more importantly, in a participation sense, sitting at that table being peppered by questions. Let's just start there with a rack and stack, though, because I have another question. Um, Isn't it dangerous for these uh, intelligence community leaders to even come out, potentially say in an open forum, this is the most important threat. Does that give our enemies ammunition, so to speak? Um, I don't think so. That, but yes, theoretically, it's possible. Uh, and let me give you one of those hypotheticals. Uh, if it were found out, and I'm not going to name a country here because I don't want to um, slander them in any way, but if it were you know, some country around the world call it um, Kerplakistan. And (laughs) Kerplakistan, we just suddenly figured out Kerplakistan had covertly, completely to our surprise, developed a nuclear weapon system, perhaps biological, chemological weapon, uh, chemical weapons as well. And they had the delivery mechanisms for them. And we had discovered that they had active plans to distribute these weapons, uh, at least to the United States and its allies, but perhaps globally, um, within the next week. Well, by definition, that's a pretty high threat. That, that, would, that would be high on the list of uh, the worldwide threat briefing and its testimony. If it were collected in such a way that you could not even talk about it without talking about sources and methods, then that would not be in the open testimony. Now, that's a, an extreme example of something that would be a quick, immediate threat. The only example I can think in history when this possibly could have happened is well before the worldwide threat briefings were a thing because there were no intelligence committees. But I think back to the Cuban Missile Crisis. What if intelligence leaders were asked to give a worldwide threat briefing and it was during the time that they had discovered the missiles, but while John Kennedy was keeping it quiet and basically discussing options with his advisors and they had not declared that it had happened? Um, by definition, you're not revealing the greatest threat to America if you don't reveal it, and yet there's no way in hell they're going to reveal it. That's not the nature of intelligence or policy. Now, that is a hypothetical because it really doesn't work that way. It's not as if we're in you know, the TV show 24 or something, and there's some super plot that's just discovered that is of that level. That really doesn't happen often. Instead, what you have is the usual suspects. Of course, some of the greatest threats to US national security are going to be a resurgent Russia, an expansionist China, North Korea's, you know, illegal regime and its development of weapons of mass destruction, perhaps the threat from Iran, the threat from terrorist groups. The interesting part is what new issues develop that that get into that category? Is it cybersecurity as a general issue? Is it the climate emergency we're in? At what level is it pandemics? At what level do those issues rise to the level of talking about them in a national security sense, the same way that we talk about the Russian military and Chinese adventurism. That is interesting. And I I think we all recognize that intelligence and threats around the world can be politicized. And let me know if I have this reading right of what happened in 2019. Essentially, right, the 
the briefing was held, but the leaders disagreed um, with assessments, or, or they maybe they made assessments that contradicted what Donald Trump had said and believed. And then he went out and bashed them. Um, they kind of got in a fight over the importance of China, Iran, Russia, you know, you name it, mm-hmm. uh, North Korea. And then was it correct in 2020, it was the intelligence leaders who asked not to hold the briefing because they did not want to get into an open conflict with the president again? That's what reporting suggests. Um, we've not okay. seen anything definitive on it, but the reporting coming out at the time suggests that's what happened. Is Would that have been the right call for those intelligence leaders? Do you think that was the right thing to do? It's a thorny ethical dilemma at that point, Amanda, because on the one yeah. hand, you have intelligence leaders who are sworn not to mislead Congress. And obviously, that creates an issue in open testimony because there are some things you can't say in open testimony that you can say behind closed doors of the secure compartmented facility, the SCIF, where they can talk about classified information. Those briefings happen to the intelligence committees all the time. They're used to getting classified information. The the thing that the intelligence leaders testifying have to keep straight, and they prepare for weeks, even months to do this, is making sure that there is no different analytic message between the open testimony and the classified message. That is, you can't say North Korea is not a threat at all, and then go into the classified briefing and say, North Korea is the biggest threat ever. You have to find a way to communicate the same bottom line message with different levels of detail, certainly with different sourcing and mentioning of the reporting that we collect. That's that's the hard challenge. Now, that's hard enough in an average year. But there's a way of doing it, and the intel committees generally have been pleased with this, even if the members can ask some off-the-wall questions and they're they're not happy with specific responses, they generally understand the nature of an intelligence briefing in an open format. But if you layer on top of that the pressure from the administration, who are out there claiming things that the intelligence community may know aren't true, then you have a really sticky wicket. You've got open testimony, you're required not to mislead Congress. And yet, if you say something, it might directly contradict something the president himself has said the day before. Now, my suspicion, and that's all it is, is that intelligence leaders in private briefings with their oversight committees were giving them the straight analysis, the message they were getting from the intelligence analysts who focus on these topics. And we have some reporting to suggest that, that the members of Congress were still getting regular intelligence briefings on even sensitive topics and receiving it. This came out publicly most of all last year with reporting on the threats to the election from foreign sources. And these briefings were going on. You can understand the intelligence leaders not wanting to have the public session because what happens if you even mildly imply that there's a different assessment than the president? you get fired. And it's not really about the personal side. I'm not sure Dan Coates was too worried about his place in history or about how he would feel that he got kicked out by Trump because he wasn't fully supportive as the director of national intelligence. I think it's about realizing who's going to come after me. If you're Dan Coates, you're thinking, I've got a handle on this. I'm, we're still getting messages to key customers, even though it's a difficult relationship in some ways with the White House. But what happens if someone else comes in, like a John Ratcliffe, will be the same way. So I think that was on their mind. They wanted to do their best to preserve the relationships they had with Congress and not bring out into the open these issues that were certain to air about differences about assessments on Russia and other topics. 
Yeah, I just can't help but think about how the public was deprived of that information and Congress of that public questioning opportunity uh, because of Donald Trump. And and that's the real issue here is we are in an unusual position of an intelligence community that has an annual budget of tens of billions of dollars to do all kinds of secret collection of intelligence in an open society. There is an inherent tension there. And everyone's aware of it on the oversight side, on the administration side, on the intelligence side. It's it's known that this can create a potential problem. So what's one way of mitigating that problem? Well, you have vigorous oversight. That's one. But if that oversight take, takes place in secret, that doesn't really help get societal buy-in. And to have an open representative democracy engaging in clandestine activities, it is really helpful to have that public view, to have the leaders explaining what the threats are, how they are arrayed to meet those threats, and to have their representatives asking questions in a way that they can see it. When that didn't happen last year, you did see a bunch of head scratching saying, uh-oh, you know, are we moving to a more secretive regime, a way of managing intelligence? The good news is it appears it was just a blip. That is the committees, mm-hmm. the members of the intelligence community, as much as they don't love preparing for these, they do see this as important. And you talk to the past leaders of the intel community, and I suspect the current leaders of the intel community, and they will probably universally say, this is a net good. All the work that goes into it is good for the intelligence community. It's good for Congress. And more importantly, it's good for American society. Well, going into this tomorrow, what topics do you expect to be addressed in a high-profile way? I mean, given that we can talk about nuclear threats, the pandemic, terrorism, yep. I mean, all topics are on the table. I don't even know how you begin to prioritize in them. That part. But I guess, what do you want to hear from, and where are the most fruitful opportunities for good oversight? Yeah, this this, this is a hard one because... Uh, people who have presented this testimony in the past will tell you they don't want to give the impression that because they mention something first, that that is the only threat or even a threat that rises above the others to a significant degree. Uh, they will be the first to tell you we are facing dozens uh, or perhaps hundreds of discrete threats, some of which reinforce each other and build on each other, but we can't take our eyes off of any of them. We have to have an intelligence community wide enough to both look at the rise of China and look at the national security implications of the climate emergency. You you can't just ignore one because one seems more important today. So I suspect they will highlight some of the typical things that you would expect, the the geostrategic threats. And I think here about China, Russia, uh, Iran, North Korea. I also think there will be more attention perhaps than in previous years to some of those transnational issues that are not terrorism, which has been the primary transnational issue mentioned for most of the years of the worldwide threat briefing. I think here you'll have more attention to the national security implications of the climate emergency. I think you will have more attention to pandemics because this COVID-19 one, while horrific in so many ways, is probably not the worst that people will see uh, in the coming decades and certainly the the coming century. So I think there will be some attention to those as well. The hard part you already mentioned, which is on the other side, which is the questions. Members can ask anything they want. And traditionally, there's been a mix. 
Some of them have asked very good questions uh, from a strategic point of view about why are you highlighting this? What do we know? What more do you need to, to go after this? Is there a risk of treating it this way? The kinds of things you want oversight to do. And then traditionally, there's a few who ask questions that leave people scratching their heads. And it might be a pet issue of theirs because of their constituents, which might be unusual from a national security posturing point of view. But from a political posturing point of view, it makes sense. What we don't know this year is whether some of the people like Devin Nunes or uh, at least Stefanik, are they going to take the opportunity to try to make some political play and politicize the intelligence briefing? I suspect someone will, and they will ask something that is either inappropriate for an open hearing for that reason or just galactically stupid. These things do happen, but you will have members who sometimes haven't said the right things politically and have seemed to exacerbate other tensions who actually treat intelligence well. Uh, Marco Rubio has been an example of this. He's somebody who we've talked about extensively on this podcast and elsewhere, his, his political statements. But when it comes to intelligence, he has actually worked in many ways with Mark Warner and others on the other side of the aisle to, to treat intelligence briefings responsibly. So it'll be interesting to watch. I think it will be a positive story. People will get to see their intelligence leaders talking about threats and explaining why it's important to America to be aware of this and have a robust intelligence community. I think we'll have most members on the Senate and even the House side asking responsible questions that show that they are giving some oversight and even some guidance to to help the intelligence community moving forward. But a disproportionate amount of attention will go to the outliers who actually don't treat this process as uh, as importantly, perhaps, as they should. Yeah. And I, I'm wondering, even though this is a worldwide threat briefing, how much attention will be paid to the rise of domestic terrorism? Because you've heard from other security officials saying that they are just overstretched in trying to keep track of all the tips they're getting, um, you know, in light of the Capitol riots. I'm wondering, will that be a component of this? Because I can see that going haywire real fast. Yeah, it it probably will be. That is, I, I would be surprised if someone did not ask about it. And it's a, it's a matter of how much they're going to talk about publicly and how much they will use their typical opportunity to say, that's something we need to talk about in closed session. Now, the issue here is it's primarily a foreign intelligence briefing. So I believe the sessions coming up this week will feature the director of national intelligence, the head of the CIA, the head of the NSA, the head of the DIA, and the head of the FBI. I believe that's the people who were invited this year. As such, if there's a question about domestic terrorism that is purely about domestic terrorism, that is, it's not about foreign connections. It's not about foreign money supporting them. It's not about were the Russians sponsoring these, which does border on the foreign intelligence collection and analysis side. But to the extent there are questions just about the domestic terrorism threat and what's happening, everyone in that room and all of the people sitting at that table are going to be turning their heads and looking at the FBI director. And the FBI mm -hmm. director is going to answer those questions. It would be foolish to believe that the FBI director has not been prepping for weeks for exactly what answers he can and should give in that situation uh, that are both not misleading, 
but also not likely to exacerbate tensions and exploit differences. Um, I would not be surprised if some of the questions lead to answers about these are matters of active investigation and and we're not going to talk about it because we have incomplete information. We will brief you fully when we have a completed investigation on part X, part Y, or part Z. That would be both a truthful answer and an artful answer to make sure that you are not misleading the questioner while you promise to get them more information later. Okay. Well, that is certainly something we will all continue to keep an eye on. I'm sure you will be back again to talk about what was said. I'm sure Joe Biden will have something to say about uh, the hearing. Donald Trump probably will. Maybe we'll have another statement coming out via one of his surrogates. Um, But regardless, uh, we're so glad that you came on today to walk us through the substance of what we can expect to hear because it is so important. And these matters of national security often get overlooked in the daily jumble of chaos uh, that revolves around the next presidential election. So we Thank you. are so, gra- so glad to hear to you, you here. hosting. And I'm just wondering <laughs> if we can go get that trophy now. Oh, yes. I am going right now to the engraving shop to get a David Priest champion for freedom and bulwark favorite. Thank you. So much for joining us Uh, tomorrow. Bill Crystal and Mona Sharon will be here to do it all over again. Charlie will be back next week.